Hello listeners and welcome to the AfriWet platform where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibu to any new listeners to the AfriWet world. We invite you to check out previous AfriWet episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed to the west of our continent for part 1 as we journey to meet the very special Ife Kingdom, who are especially special to the Yoruba of the region. A shout out to my West Africans out there, Afriwetu has landed on your shores. I apologize in advance for the mispronunciation of words that will most definitely happen. But very quickly, before we begin, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at @afriwetu across all the platforms where we do post interesting facts, stories, updates and links for further studies for all you lovely people. And also tell your friends and families about us. Yes? And for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. place of dispersion that is the literal meaning of ife ife the capital city of the ife kingdom it is the oldest yoruba city and is today viewed as a sacred and holy city for them as well as those in the region it is the ancestral home of not just the ruling dynasties but also the regular people Although the city of Ife Ife dates back to circa 500 BC, it really was between the 11th and 15th century AD that the Ife Kingdom was not only the center of commerce and military might, but also of religion for the region. And then between the 12th and the 15th centuries, what is called the Classic Period, is when we see its expansion in size, trade, and commerce, as well as a more centralized social-political system of governance and in the cultural space, with increased production and mastery of the famed terracottas, bronze, and glass beadworks. The Ife Kingdom's location is what really lent to its rise and dominance in the region, being placed at the key intersections of trade routes that linked the Atlantic trade with the inlands, the forest and the savanna areas. Now, before we go any further, let's pull up our maps so we can get our bearings, cool? The Ife Kingdom physically covered around the area that is modern-day Nigeria, southwest of the Lower Niger, along the Guinea coast. It controlled the rainforests in the west of the River Isaber, which is also the River Niger. But as we know, its impact was felt much further afield. So when it comes to the origin story. Now, remember when Afriwet to cover the mighty Oyo Empire in season 2 episodes 1 and 
please go and check them out as this Ife kingdom and the previous Nok civilization do share a close history with this Uyo empire. This is a very, 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 very short version of the folklore story, which goes something like this. It is said that Odudua, who created the world, sent down his children to rule over the 12 key lands, and they were the first Unis, and from them, all the royal ruling dynasties claimed their lineage. When it came to Ife, the Yoruba seat as the home of creation, and it was here that Odudua descended and from where the first divine Oni ruled. We shall have a separate Legends episode with a bit more detail because it is just such a dope story to tell. As we come closer to the historical story, the original inhabitants were said to be the Ubo. And then early in the BC era, when they were under the rule of Obatala, there was an invasion from the north by the Yoruba's ancestors, led by Odudua, which kick-started the first phase of the Ife Kingdom. Once victorious, Odudua is said to have sent out his kin to the rest of the region, and it is they who founded the rest of the Yoruba states. Ife itself therefore started as a collection of villages spread widely around the area. Some say there were 12 or 13 of them, linking back to the story of the children of Odudua. See how all the dots connect? Anyway, following this invasion, the original people moved to the east, but not all of them left. And it is said that some of them were actually absorbed into the Ife and that their cultures were then shared and they were f and you find similarities in their art, their political and societal setup and even their agricultural and industrial methods. Now, because this is Afri Wetu, there was a really interesting story linked to the origin of Ife that just has to be told. That of Moremi, a story that is told during the Moremi Edi festival. The story goes something like this. There was a tale of how those in the city-state were raided by a superior army led by spirits from another realm. They would come and scare the locals into giving up their wares and harvests. The people were powerless against such magical forces. There was no way around it. I mean, how do you fight an army that is fortified by spirits? Well, in this city, there was a woman called Moremi who was pained by the plight of her people and sought to do something about it because, you know, African women come with solutions, right? Anyway, Almuremi then went to the river Eshin Mirin, where she offered a huge sacrifice to the mighty spirit and in exchange was advised on how to help her people. She was told that at the next harvest, she should allow herself to become a captive of this army and then set the plan in motion for her to discover how to protect her people from these raids. Moremi did as she was instructed. She 
was taken back to their homeland and here she made herself the choice bride for the Oba, owing to both her beauty and her wit. She then became his favorite wife and gained his trust. She then used her wits and when the time was right, she asked him, how was it that the Ukpo were always so successful against her people, my king? You can almost picture the scene, right? Him being proud to show off how much cleverer and smarter his people were than hers and how lucky she was to be in such great company. Afriwatu pride truly comes before a fall. The proud Oba then revealed that actually, those were not spirits fortifying his army. No, they were just men wearing masks and dressed up as such to scare the people. I mean, to be fair, it was quite a genius plan. Anyway, now that she had the information she wanted, Moremi bided her time and then escaped from her captors, going back home to Ife Ife. She then went and met with her own, her people's own Oni and shared what she had learned. They then prepared to defend themselves for the next raid. And like clockwork, the invaders came. But this time, they were met by the people running at them and then in the midst of them with flaming fire torches, setting fire to their disguises and scaring the heck out of them. Karma. That fake spirit army fled and did not come back again. Oyo, they were like, no, 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 no. Thanks to the quick wit and determination of one Moremi. This story is not just random. It will make more sense a little bit later, I promise. Okay, back to our Ife. I want to call this section the dynastic foundations. So now knowing a little bit more about the origins, let's look at what happened when the early Yoruba ancestors themselves landed. To be sure, they were met with resistance by the inhabitants led by Obatala. As we know that this was now in vain because, you know, there was a more powerful leader called Odudua. Odudua set out on a campaign to forge political alliances with the people around and used one of the most effective ways through marriages once he had conquered the land. He and his intermarried to secure the legacy as the next generation would then belong to both sides and thus neutral. Odudua's children were then sent out to lead their own kingdoms and establish the dynasty. Odudua himself was succeeded by his, by all accounts, much weaker son, Obalufon I. His was not a great reign. It was one filled with strife and under him the political instruments and structure that was set up started to just fall apart. Meaning that he was losing his grip on the kingdom and to make matters worse, this was further exacerbated by the unrest within the kingdom. In fact, under him the city-state was really not in great shape. Enter one of the more well-known Onis, Obalufon II, who succeeded our unfortunate Obalufon I. 
Obalufon II was also Odudua's kin and is said to have inherited the throne from his maternal lineage. What he inherited was then a very weakened throne, and although he was really well loved by the people, despite his best efforts, he was overthrown by the usurper Oranmian. Oranmian was a powerhouse and a strong military leader with great conquest to his name, including that of Benin and the Oyo civilizations. Afriwetu covered him in season two under the Oyo episode, so please check them out. But for the purposes of here, when it came to Ife, there was some controversy around his claim to the throne. Was he a usurper or a rightful heir? Well, some accounts say that he was a direct descendant of Odudua, so therefore family. In fact, it's this same Oramian who led uprisings against the first Obalufon. Just a side note. So by the time Obalufon II was ascending to the throne, keeping in mind that Oramian was already leading an aggressive stance against the, against the first Obalufon, he really honestly had no chance against a military man who not only laid claim to the throne, but had also been waging an aggressive and successful campaign and winning. In fact, it is rumored that the only reason that Obalufon II did take the throne was because Oramian was actually away in the battlefield and not physically there to stop him. However, others dispute Oramian's claim to the throne, saying he had no legitimate claim. They do accept that he was Odudua's kin, but that he was the youngest one and so could not really jump a queue. His real legacy is that as the founder of the Oyo Empire, the first Alafin. Afriwet would love to hear from our listeners from modern-day Nigeria as to this interpretation. Please use our socials and let us know your story. Back to our coup. Regardless of the rationale, Obalufon II was not going to let this pass, and so he began his campaign to regain the throne. As we already heard, he was loved by the people, so that helped a great deal as they gave him the much-needed support. Now, remember the story of Moremi? So... She was actually from the Oranmian side. And when she escaped, it was to go back to them to tell them of the secret. I mean, I love it again when the dots just reconnect. So for the second part of the story of Moremi, she is then credited with being the bridge between the two factions, having gained the respect of all concerned. And she used her influence to push for real peace by first pushing for Obalufon II to regain his throne. And then she took her role as his queen, Olori, which I believe means queen consort in Yoruba. And it is actually in this role that her son was given to the river, remember the pledge that she made, to fulfill her part of the sacrifice for freeing her people. Anyway, once all of this was done, Obafulon, the second, having had the support of the locals and reinforced by his marriage to Moremi, he was then able to proceed to have a peaceful and prosperous reign. He is said to have ushered in the start of the second Odudua dynasty and the end of the Obatala one. 
He's assumed to have died of old age, having achieved a great legacy and securing Ife's future success. Olabufon II is today revered and known as an honorable ruler and formidable military leader, having been the man who united the divided peoples, bringing harmony across the divide, and because of him, Ife grew and became the dominating force to reckon with in the region. He is closely linked to the Ogboni society, and the Yoruba masks which are used to depict royalty are said to reflect him. So, after that, as we look at the political and governance structure of the Ife kingdom, let's just start by acknowledging that the Onis from here on out trace their roots to Odudua. This is worth mentioning as to date the Yoruba kingdoms of Benin, Oil, Uo, and so on recognize this and their own rulers are said to stem from, say, dynasty. He is revered as both a hero and a deity. His city of Ife Ife, from whence his kin was sent to rule, would also be the central point from where the descendants would go back home to be officially crowned, to get spiritual blessings for their rule, have their ade, a beaded crown, royal staffs and swords, the symbols of political acceptance and spiritual authority bestowed upon them. In return, they would then pledge to protect the sacred city. The Ade were beaded crowns made in Ife. This is significant to note as this was a clear linkage to their ancestors and validation of their claim. The style was the clear sign of power and authority. It would not do to just make a replica in their own kingdoms or empires. No, 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 no. It had to be one from the sacred city of Ife Ife. From the 12th century, the Ife kingdom expanded and with this a more centralized form of governance and sacred kinship. The only once crowned was deemed to be a sacred man and had, on face value, absolute power. The reality was that he actually ruled the lands with the support of loyal chiefs. And closer to home, he was answerable to the Geru court of senior chiefs, who saw to it that the Oni did not overstep and that they were able to actually curb his powers. The Geru had both judicial and legislative powers. They were led by the Loa from the Modewa lineage, and it was he who acted as the intermediary between the Oni and the Geru. Geru spelled J-E-R-U. I'm sure I've mispronounced it. <laughs> anyway, the Oni was the head of government with these checks and balances, and he had to heed advice. They were also expected to be of good moral character and hold the trust of the people. And the people's trust was not to be taken lightly, and actually, an Oni could find themselves deposed without it. I actually read that the process of being dethroned, for any of the set reasons, included the only being presented with a calabash of death, which held charms made of parrot's eggs. And this would be a sign that he was for the executioner's chop. If lucky and smart, the Oni could seek refuge with the head of the diviners, the Araba, and from here plead for their life. If granted, they could live out their days in exile. Ife royals would be dispatched to rule the provinces of the kingdom, and this is common practice across other West African civilizations, a sure way to keep it in the family, one would say. It also had the double benefit of keeping potentially powerful claimants and ambitious royals in check away from the center. 
Speaking of the center, when it came to the Oni and his loyal subjects, their loyalty included a fun fact about the role of special palace servants. There were sometimes occasions for a servant to dress up in the kingly robes and legally impersonate their Oni, basically acting as a surrogate. Two such occasions which were discovered were when the king was sick and couldn't show up. So this helped keep up appearances of a vibrant and present Oni. The second, which is a more interesting reason, is on the Oni's death. Now, it was not very clear-cut as to the succession of a deceased Oni. Each of the five or four royal houses had a claim to the throne and would have to have their candidates put forward for selection by the official kingmakers. So in light of this, there being no clear rotation on who the next Oni was and from which royal house, you can imagine the uncertainty this could cause, not just tension and instability, but I also think given a chance, the enemy forces would be able to take advantage of this, right? Anyway, on such occasions, a trusted and loyal servant would assume the role in order to provide a smooth transition in the eyes of the public as the nobility went through the selection process. The servant was always a close confidant of the late Oni. Not just anybody could don the royal robes. And this system actually really makes sense when you consider at this period, in this possible quagmire, it would be best to keep majority out of the loop as a political royal wrangling took place in the background. Because this act would therefore ensure that the kingdom's stability continued across the board. So there's a random interesting tidbit which was found is that when it came to the royal courts is that there was something called a mole court. It was also sometimes called the apata odaju, which translates to a rock where there is no mercy. Gosh, I love African sayings. It was like a private and exclusive members only club, of course, just men, and whose members included the likes of the Oni, senior chiefs, and similar kind of level men. So obviously very, very secretive. Once within the mole apparatus, apparently everybody was treated as equal. It was completely impartial and even the Oni couldn't pull rank and was subject to whomever was leading the proceedings. So there are a lot of checks in terms of this rule and in terms of the royals and in terms of nobility. Anyway, when we look at religion and the royals, the role of religion in Ife royalty was very important. Remember that the Ife Ife was and still is revered as a sacred city. And we just heard that an Oni could actually call on the head diviner to get out of being killed. I mean, they are that important. We spoke of the Jeru, the court of senior chiefs, and who had both judicial and legislative powers. So this head, the Loa, who was a conduit between the two, the Jeru and the Oni, would take to the latter, the Oni, the proposals and decisions by the council, which would then have to be ratified by him. So now, of course, things didn't always run smoothly. So when there was a dispute between the two institutions, these were taken to then be adjudicated by the Ifa priests, who were revered as having superior powers of divination. They would then consult the oracle for answers, which once given, if you ignore that advice, it was really at your own peril. 
the role of the Ifa priesthood and the oracle was one that was recognized across the region and rulers from the different states would come and consult them on political issues. Actually, it is said that these rulers would always ensure that regardless of whatever else was going on, there was always protection afforded to the priesthood in Ife Ife. When we look at the expansion now, the kingdom spanned out and grew in power and influence. The royals who were sent forth would take with them their own followers and set up new lands. Some say this is a good population control measure to decongest the capital city, which is possible, yeah? Another more common and commercial reason was to gain control of the trade routes and centers in the region, from those that were lucrative points as actual routes to centers of commerce and trades to the land and sea routes and everywhere, even where the goods were collected or exchanged. So these societies that were set up, what were they like? So, we find ourselves smack bang in the past, being guided towards the walled city state of Ife Ife. As we walk through the gates, we see that they are adorned with many objects, and those guards look like they could break you in half with ease. Rumor has it that they were ex-convicts, and to be honest, looking at them, we can believe it. Best not to stare, says our guide. Let's get inside quickly. As we enter the city, our feet clatter on the terracotta streets. The city is laid out in concentric circles and with walls of at least 15 feet high. The palace is at the center with a circumference of about four kilometers. Our guide tells us that the palace is a very special and sacred place and of great importance to the people. We keep walking and note the different stone buildings and adobe brick structures decorated with discs from the shrines to the homes. As we continue to explore the city, we pass through the courtyards and here the ground is paved with beautiful designs from pieces of pottery and pebbles. It really is quite a sight when you see the whole mosaic effect in living color. We find ourselves being led to the edge of the city as we take in the last sights and sounds, soaking in the moment as we know soon we shall be back in the present. Now, just as religion was key with the nobles, it was the same with the rest of society. And the Ife had a number of deities who were worshipped as part of their culture. The most significant ones were Obatala, Ore, and Odudua. Who, by the way, interesting thing, in some Yoruba towns, Odudua is considered a female. Huh, go figure. Anyway, each deity would have their own shrines, and what is fascinating is what one could find in them. So outside of the beautiful sculptures, it is what these sculptures actually looked like. It was common for those with physical disabilities were considered to be special and sacred to Obatala especially, and in fact served as priests and priestesses of the deities. So the sculptures were found to also depict those who were, for example, hunchbacks, little people, disabled and albinos, why is this important to note? Well, to show that discrimination is a learned thing. Even our ancestors revered all people, regardless of their physical appearance.
Now, as we close out, what else was going on in this period? Afriwatu, I heard your feedback and this section is back for good, I promise. This civilization spans centuries, so I'll try to pick out a few interesting events just for context. So, in the AD 500s, also called the beginning of the Middle Ages and in the first and the first millennium, in AD 400, the myth of King Arthur was born from writings, mostly from those of Geoffrey of the Monmouths and was spread around the area. In AD 525, Dionysus Exigius, a Scythian monk, invents the Anna Domino era calendar, the one that we use here at Everywhere too. In AD 569, the Nubian kingdoms of Alodia Makuria convert to Christianity. When it comes to the 7th century, in AD 622, it marks one year one of the Islamic calendar and the migration of Muhammad and his followers from Mecca to Medina. In the 8th century, the classic period of the Mayan civilization. In the 9th century, the Benin Kingdom bronzes came into fame. In fact, before, in AD 830, the Ghana Wagadu Empire was established. In the 10th century, AD 948, the Nri Kingdom is established. Lions became extinct in Europe and the Muslim world experienced its zenith. In the 11th century, the start of the second millennium, the Uyo Empire is established. The Kingdom of Benin is established. The Kanemborn Empire of West Africa expands even further. Now, as we come to summarize, let's take a breath as we wind down on this episode. It was fun, right? And there's still so much more to come in part two. Imagine that. It is worth stating that Ife is still in existence today and Ife Ife continues to be a sacred place for the Yoruba housing very sacred shrines. The royal lines in Yoruba and successor states still claim a link to Ife as the root of the lineage and there's still a lot of reverence shown in the royal symbols and rituals that hark back to days of old. So as we bring it home, Afriwatu, now wasn't that just a trip? I mean, when studying the civilization, there were so many great nuggets of history and facts that it was so much fun to explore. But equally, it was so very difficult to select what would be in these two final episodes, I promise you. I really, really hope that this will inspire those of you who never knew about the Ife to go and read up and to take the plunge into the wonderful history of this and the other African civilizations. Hit us up on our socials and to share any cool stuff that you found out. And for those of you who are the descendants of these ancestors, we would love to hear from you, especially what you think about the episode and if there are any interesting nuggets that you want to share with us that we can share with the Afriwatu. And to all of you, please remember to tune in for part two of the Ife Kingdom in a couple of weeks. And until next time, Mubarikiwe! Kajakwa